Well, if you'd open your Bibles up to Isaiah 52, please. Isaiah 52. Our text will be Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15. If God permits, uh, we will be going through a series that will carry us through the end of Isaiah 53 over the next several weeks. Um, This is a marvelous, marvelous passage. And so we will just walk through it a few verses at a time and see what the Lord would say to our souls. So I'm just going to read Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15 now. So hear the word of the Lord. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come to this text now, we think of the words that our Lord Jesus Christ said after he had risen from the dead and how he rebuked some of his own disciples for being slow to believe what the prophets had spoken. And Lord, we don't want to be like that, but we confess to you that that is often where where we are. Lord, we we read the words of your prophets, like the words of the prophet Isaiah that I just read, and we're slow to believe. And in particular, Father, we, we have this inward resistance against the truth that your Christ should suffer and then enter into his glory. Lord, we don't like suffering. We don't like shame. We don't like hardship or sorrow or sadness. We don't like anguish. But Father, that is the path that you chose for your son. And that is the path to glory. And so we pray that you would overcome within us the resistance that is there. So that even as we just sang, man of sorrows, what a name. And are able to rejoice in the fact that our Savior became a man of sorrows to save us. We pray that you would work within us through this text, both a deep humility, but also, Lord, a solid happiness and a hope, a hope in the one who is coming again. Please come now, O Holy Spirit. Do what no man can do. Work within our hearts Cause the light of your glory that shines through Jesus Christ and from Jesus Christ to shine within us tonight. Change us, transform us, cause those who are yet dead in their sins to come to life and cause those who live to flourish and grow and bear much fruit for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. As we look at this text, and we see that it opens by naming this one, my servant. And we realize that we find the same thing at the end of chapter 53, in verse 11, where it refers again, God speaking of my servant. The language is so familiar to us that it's possible that we should fail to see the scandal of what's being said. I mean, really, if it had been up to me, which we can all thank God it wasn't, but if it had been up to me to decide what titles God the Son would receive, what words we would use to honor him and remember him and to stimulate our faith and hope and love towards him, I'm quite sure I would not have chosen to call the Lord of glory a servant. 
Now, to be sure, there is a certain honor in calling a mere man the servant of the Lord. Because it is a a position of responsibility. It's a position where he's being used by God. That man is a servant of the Lord. But when you are God, but when we're talking about God the Son, to call him a servant should actually make us feel a little bit uncomfortable or at least strange. Because a servant is the person in the household who gets the dirty jobs. The servant in the household is the one who stands and waits on others, who has to sweat and work and labor and experience the heat of the day or the cold of the night so that others may benefit. Nobody really wants to be a servant. And yet, this is the word that God has chosen to describe his son. And indeed, this is a precious word that shows us something of his glory. This is not the first time that Isaiah has referred to the coming Christ as the servant of the Lord. He does it in several places. In fact, oftentimes, Isaiah refers to the people of God, Israel, as God's servant or his servants. But sometimes it refers to God's special servant, that individual man that God is sending. For example, in Isaiah 42, verse 1, it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Which, by the way, is quoted in Matthew 12, 18 and applied to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Or again, in Isaiah 49, verses 3 and 6. You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Strangely, that passage calls the servant Israel. And yet, it says that he is sent to save Israel. Showing us that, in a sense, the servant is the head of the body, to use New Testament language. The servant is the representative of his people. He is the one who comes to do the will of God, but not for his own sake, for the sake of the people, for the sake of God's people. He comes to do the will of the Lord. And this passage that I just read to you, Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 15, is the beginning of the greatest discourse in Isaiah on the servant of the Lord. It continues through the end of chapter 3. This is one of those times where the chapter breaks in the Bible are not quite set where we would hope they should be. Remember, the Bible did not come with inspired chapters and verses. Those are things that people added later, and we're thankful for them. Um, But they don't necessarily represent the breaks in the text. And this passage, the end of chapter 52 and all of chapter 53, is frankly one of the most powerful expositions of Christ and his work to be found in the entire Bible. It is a passage that rivals the great text in Romans 3, the great passage in Galatians 3, and other texts in the New Testament. It's a passage that is so clear and so powerful that that we might even say, rather than turning to the book of Isaiah, we might want to say, let us turn to the gospel of Isaiah. Because it's like we're reading in the gospels about the coming of the Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a passage that's quoted several times in the New Testament and clearly applied to Christ so that we know that this is about our Savior. For example, in Luke 22, verse 37, Christ says... For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And there he's quoting Isaiah 53, verse 12. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 to 25, he committed no sin, 
neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And if you have time later, you can look at Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 9, and see how Peter has taken different parts of that and woven them together. He's saying, this is about our Lord. This is about Jesus. This is about our Savior. And though it was written by Isaiah, who lived and wrote some seven centuries before Jesus came, it reads as if it were written the day after the crucifixion. This is a marvelous testimony, my friends. And here, as we examine these first three verses, we see that the message of this part, this beginning of this marvelous prophecy, can be summarized in three words. The words are humiliation, exaltation, and salvation. Humiliation, being brought low, being humiliated, disgraced. Exaltation, being lifted up, being honored, being glorified, and salvation. Because the servant of the Lord suffered humiliation for his exaltation in our salvation. That's the core idea of this passage. The servant of the Lord suffered humiliation for the purpose, for the sake of his exaltation in our salvation. So let's let's walk through this text just one verse at a time and as it were sit at the base of the cross and consider our Lord. First of all, in this text, we see the servant's supreme exaltation. The servant's supreme exaltation. Let me read Isaiah 52, verse 13 again. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. The passage starts with a call to attention. It says, behold, look. Behold my servant. The the word translated behold can mean to look. It, It can be used in phrases like behold, there they are. Or here I am. Or behold your God because his glory has appeared on earth. It can also be used to the effect of listen, pay attention. This is important. And so God is calling us to give our attention, to to look, to focus our minds, to set our thoughts and the affections of our hearts upon his servant, the Messiah, the Christ. And he says, my servant will act wisely. And this word generally means to act prudently, to have insight. It can also mean, and sometimes is translated, to prosper. But the idea is when you act prudently, when you act wisely, it leads to success. And so the idea is that God's servant is going to make wise choices and he will succeed in the purpose for which he has come. He is not going to be a failure, even though he will endure terrible pain, extreme humiliation, he takes the good path. What we're about to read is the good path, the wise path. And just how good it is, is declared by the next three verbs. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, those three verbs, even though they're three different verbs, mean essentially the same thing. They all have the idea of being lifted up, of being honored, of being glorified, of of attaining a, a great and honorable position. And you notice threefold repetition? In the Bible, when when it wants to emphasize something, it says it again and says it again. You remember the passage earlier in this book in Isaiah 6, where the seraphim, these strange angelic beings, are crying out, 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Why do they repeat the word three times? It's to say he is super holy. He's supremely holy. He's holy beyond all comparison. And so here, when it says he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And indeed in the Hebrew, it ends with the word very. He shall be very exalted. It's communicating extreme exaltation, supremacy. The servant of the Lord, Isaiah is prophesying, will become the king of kings. He will become the Lord of lords. He will become the most high. It makes us think about what David writes in Psalm 110, where he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. It's this position of honor and glory. In fact, I spoke a few moments ago about Isaiah 6, where we hear holy, holy, holy. These same two words that are translated high and lifted up are used of God himself in Isaiah 6. Listen to Isaiah 6.1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And now strangely, the same thing is said of the servant of the Lord, the one whom he has sent. And did you know that in John chapter 12, verse 41, John tells us, Isaiah, he saw Jesus. He saw Jesus, the servant of the Lord, is, in fact, the Lord himself. Or to use the language of the New Testament, the one sent by the Father, the Son, is himself God. We find the same words, high and lifted up, again used of God in Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, Dear friends, this may not strike us as forcibly as it would the ancient Hebrews because we live in a time when virtually everyone thinks he's a god. And in fact, some people actually believe that they are gods. But in the biblical perspective, there is an infinite distance between the glory of God and that which belongs to his creatures. He is the creator. We are merely that which he has made. It is utterly unthinkable that God would give his divine glory to that which is not God. In fact, God even says in Isaiah 48, 11, my glory I will not give to another. And these very same words, high and lifted up, are used of proud and arrogant foolish people who think that they're high and lifted up and try and lift themselves up, and God squashes them on the day of judgment In Isaiah 2.12, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. God will not allow anyone to claim the glory that is rightfully his, and there's only one God. But here's the mystery. In this text, the same Things are said of the servant of the Lord as are said of the glory of God himself. What this text is pressing us to consider is that the servant of the Lord will be so honored and so exalted that he will receive glory that properly belongs only to God. This servant of the Lord will be in his exaltation revealed to be none other than the Lord Jehovah himself. Again, to use the language of the New Testament, the Son of God will be revealed to be God. One substance with the Father. I I don't know if this is the case. I, I can't prove this, but it is striking to think about this passage and what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2. Because in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and following, Paul talks about one who was in the very form of God. In other words, he shared God's very essence and attributes. And yet this person, God the Son, 
took on the form of a what? A servant. A servant. The same thing Isaiah is saying here. Within the Trinity, the Father sent the Son, and the Son willingly took on a human form. He became a human being. He became a man, just as we are human. He took the form of a servant, or it could even be translated a slave in order to save us. And when he had humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross, what did God do? Paul says he exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. Do you see? It's almost as if Paul is is thinking about Isaiah 52. And certainly it's, it's the same stream of thought This is saying to us, my friends, that when we're dealing with Jesus Christ, we need to realize that we're not just dealing with a man. Yes, he came as the servant of the Lord. He did the dirty job. He did the hard job, as we're about to see. But in his exaltation, he has been glorified and lifted up. He's ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. And from that place, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And it is plain and evident to everyone who has a sight of his glory that this is no mere man. He is God. When you deal with Jesus, you are dealing with God. You are dealing with God the Son incarnate. You are dealing with the Lord of glory. And therefore we need to relate to him as such. And we need to honor him. Jesus said that it is God's will that the Son be honored even as the Father is honored. The Bible tells us that if you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. You can't have true religion that is pleasing to God unless you honor Jesus Christ as God the Son. Which means all those religions that are out there, all those people that are out there who who might be kind people, they might be moral people, they might talk about God, but if they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who is high and lifted up, if they don't acknowledge God, if they don't believe the essential truths of what we call the Trinity, even if they don't know the word itself, if they don't acknowledge that the Son of God is God come in the flesh, They're not honoring God. Not the Father, not the Son, and not the Holy Spirit. We need this Savior who is God. If we don't have a Savior who is God, we don't have a Savior. But dear friends, the the wonder and the mystery of this passage is not just that God the Son became a servant but it's the extreme humiliation that he went through. And Isaiah 53 is going to open up that humiliation and the reasons for that humiliation and how he bore our sorrows and carried our sins in a way that if God permits, we will look at in more detail in the future. But for now, I would just draw your attention to verse 14 to consider, secondly, not just the servant's supreme exaltation, but the servant's extreme humiliation. As many were astonished at you, Isaiah writes, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. The servant's path to glory doesn't go up. It goes down. The servant's mission, which will take him to a place of supreme exaltation ultimately, first takes him to the lowest place. Horrendously low. People will respond to him with shock and horror. The word translated form refers to bodily appearance, like the figure of a woman or the physique of a man. And when it says that 
His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, literally the sons of Adam. It's saying that this man is going to suffer so much, his body is going to receive so much violence and abuse that he is going to scarcely look human when people are done with him. This was also prophesied in some ways in Psalm 2, or excuse me, 22, verse 6. The psalm that opens up with those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The words that Christ cried out on the cross. And in Isaiah 22, verse 6, it says, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. These same words translated appearance and form in our text appear again in chapter 53 in verse 2, where it says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty, it's the same word as appearance, that we should desire him. As we just sang, and as Isaiah 53, 3 says, he was a man of sorrows. Jesus experienced extreme abuse and humiliation. It started even before his crucifixion. After a sleepless night and a travesty of a mock trial, people were spitting him in the face, striking him. He was scourged. He was lacerated about his head by a crown of thorns. He was spit upon, beaten on the head. The scourging that they did to him, scholars tell us, that it was done by a whip made with leather thongs with pieces of bone or metal embedded in it. It not only reduced the flesh to bloody pulp, one commentator says, but it actually could open up the body so that the bones and entrails were exposed. I'm not trying to gross you out, but I have heard it said that if you were present to see Jesus scourged and crucified, you would have thrown up. This is not just some kind of a whipping that leaves some red marks on his back. Jesus was brutalized. In fact, a flogging by itself was often enough just to kill a person. But it was used as a preparation for crucifixion. The New Testament itself, when it describes Jesus' crucifixion, does not go into much detail. Maybe that was out of a sense of reverence or aesthetic propriety, but on the other hand, it didn't really need to, because if you lived in the Roman Empire in the first century, you saw crucifixion. It was the usual practice for Roman executioners to strip the victim, flog him, force him to carry the cross beam to the location of a wooden pole or a tree, and then either nail him or tie him to the cross beam on that cross. He hung naked in public and slowly died. His position upon the cross was one that put tremendous stress upon his joints. It made breathing a struggle. It cut off circulation. It ultimately would cause heart failure. And when Jesus had died on the cross, a soldier, to verify his death, stabbed him in the side with a spear, releasing blood and water. The corpse of Jesus, as it hung in those last moments on the cross after he died, must have been horrifying. People were not looking at Jesus saying, what a hero. His body would have been covered with blood, swollen, bruised, naked, twisted, pierced, ripped open. He probably looked less like a man than an animal that had been ripped open by predators. And I wonder sometimes if we've lost the offense of the cross. If we've sanitized it. If we've tried to make it easier. Isaiah says, many were astonished. Are we astonished? It is astonishing. That God's faithful servant, God's son, of whom God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I love him, the father said. I love my son. And he does what is pleasing to me, that he 
would be so degraded. Are we horrified by the cross? Maybe we don't want to be because we don't want to face the horror of what caused the cross, which was our sins. But dear friends, when we look upon the cross, as we will see more clearly when we get to chapter 53, the cross is a screaming reminder. This is what sin deserves. This is what I deserve. This is what you deserve. That's not what he deserved. But he took it for us. And he took it, Isaiah is saying to us, because he was the servant of the Lord. He allowed this to happen. Jesus could have stopped it at any point. Jesus could have just said the word and all his enemies would have been destroyed. Jesus could have just spoken a cry and thousands of angels would have been there to stop this injustice. But Jesus is the servant of the Lord. He's come to obey. He's come to do the will of his Father. He set his foot on the path of obedience and he never turned back. Why? Because he loves his father and because he loves us. That's the wonder of this. He chose this. He endured this to glorify God in the salvation of the very sinners whose sins made it necessary. Like you, like me, like anyone who trusts in him for salvation. And oh, the comfort, the comfort that the humiliation of the son can bring to us. Because sometimes we experience humiliation too, don't we? Sometimes we feel shame. Sometimes we're exposed, mistreated. Sometimes we're just getting what we deserve. Sometimes we're not at all getting what we deserve. But people suffer deeply. They suffer physical pain. They suffer social rejection and shame. They suffer mental anguish. But as Octavius Winslow reminds us, deep as your present humiliation may be, you cannot sink so low, but you will find he sunk yet lower and is therefore able to sustain and bear you up. Christ has gone to the depths so that he could wrap his arms around us and lift us up, my friends. And save us from what we deserve. And for that, he was exalted. But his exaltation, even his exaltation, is for the sake of our salvation. And that brings us to the third thing that our text says. The servant's international salvation. Give your attention to verse 15, please. You might remember that verse 14 starts off with an as, as many were astonished at you, and then goes on to describe his humiliation. As is coupled with so. As many were astonished at you, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Now let's break that down. First of all, the picture here is a picture of salvation through God's priest. It says that he will sprinkle many nations. And that is on account of the fact that he suffered such a deep humiliation. You think, what does that mean? He sprinkled many nations. Well, 
Some people struggle with this. Sometimes they even try to translate it in a different way. Maybe it means startle many nations or something like that. But the word translated sprinkle is the word that is frequently used in the law of Moses for the work that the priests did. They would sprinkle things and people, sometimes with blood, sometimes with oil, sometimes with water. And what they were doing when they were sprinkling these objects or these people is they were taking things that had been unclean, defiled, dirtied and contaminated in a way that shut them out from God's holiness. And they were making them clean or holy so that they could be welcomed and received in God's presence. Christ is a priest. In fact, this is a theme that runs through this larger passage. As we'll see as we move, God willing, throughout chapter 53. 53.7 depicts him as dying like a lamb. He's the sacrifice. 53 verse 10 presents him as making a guilt offering. In 53.11 and 12, it speaks of him bearing sin and iniquity. And in verse 12 we read of him making intercession for transgressors, which these are the things that priests did through their sacrifices. And so what this is saying to us is that just as God's servant suffered this extreme, horrific humiliation, so out of that humiliation, out of that sacrifice that he offered of himself, he's now able to reach out and touch people And make them clean. Make them holy. Make them welcome in the presence and people of God. And my friends, he doesn't just do this for a a tiny handful of Jewish people living in Palestine. Notice it says that he shall sprinkle many nations. That the glory and the wonder of this is that just as he went to the deepest place of darkness and suffering and horror. So he has also been lifted up to the highest place so that he can be the savior of the world. Do you know the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 7 that Christ's blood will ultimately save more people than we can count? I can count pretty high. More people than we can count. This is the glory of this priest. His sacrifice is of such value that he is able to take dirty sinners and make them clean. Have you been cleansed by Christ? Have you been cleansed by him? Do you know what it is to have a sense of the dirtiness of your sins? The fact that you've done things and said things and thought things that are are wrong, that are offensive to God. Indeed, they would be offensive to right-minded people if they knew what you had done. That you are someone who deserves to be shut out, excluded, rejected, indeed, shamed. But have you also known That by trusting in this servant of God, this Jesus Christ, this God who became man and resting in what he did and not what you've done, that he can sprinkle you clean, that he can make you clean. Have you been cleansed by Christ? Has he washed your conscience? Do you know that if he has, you are truly clean? completely clean of all your sins. And do you know that if he has not done that, that he's speaking to you right now through his words, saying, it's available, it's offered, it can be for you if you will but lay down your self-righteous pride and trust in him. Oh, that every single one of us 
would be cleansed by this Christ. And yet, that's not the end of the salvation that he gives to us. There's even more. Because the text says to us that there is also not just salvation through God's priest, but salvation through God's king mentioned here. Look again at verse 15. It says, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. There's this message that goes forth out into the world. And this message, this gospel, this good news is so powerful that when people hear it, even mighty kings shut their mouths. To close one's mouth is is often an expression of respect. When you come into the presence of someone who you deeply respect and even perhaps fear a little bit, how do you act? You're quiet. You let him speak first. You listen. Job talked about this in Job 29, 7-10. He said, when I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew. The aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouth. This text says that kings will shut their mouths because of him. My friends, nobody shuts the mouth of a king except a far greater king. This is part of the exaltation of Christ and this is part of his ministry of grace and salvation. Because, dear friends, I don't mean this disrespectfully, but one of the most Important things that we need in order to be saved is for God to shut our mouths. Because our mouths have been open to bitterly and arrogantly accuse God. Our mouths have been open to complain. Our mouths have been open to grumble in unbelief, to speak dishonorably of the Lord God Almighty. Our mouths have been open to argue with God, to tell him why he's not running the world very well. And so long as we continue on that course, that course that's described at the beginning of Psalm 2, that says, why do the nations rage? So long as we continue on that course, we are on a course of doom and destruction. Because God's justice will destroy us for the way that we dishonor him. But King Jesus is able to come and to graciously shut our mouths. And to cause us to be quiet before him. In humble, submissive trust. Because he is Lord. And we are not. He is God. And we are not. And suddenly, we're glad that it's so. Have you been conquered by Christ? Has Christ shut your mouth, so to speak, with all your unbelieving criticisms? complaints, all the ways that you feel like you are so much wiser, so much more righteous. Has he humbled you? The good news is he can. He can. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. And folks, it doesn't have to be on judgment day when it'll be too late. 
It doesn't have to wait until Jesus appears in the the terrible majesty of his coming when he comes as the judge of heaven and earth and all men will see him and all intelligent creatures in the universe will then acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and they will bow the knee because then it will be too late for those who have not repented. The apostles said something very beautiful in Acts chapter 5 as they preached the gospel to the very people who had crucified Jesus, they said that he has been exalted to give repentance and forgiveness to Israel. Not just forgiveness. He is a priest to give you forgiveness, but he's also a king to give you repentance. Has he given you repentance? Has he turned your heart so that you no longer live for yourself? but you live for him. If he has, then you are glad that he's done so and grateful. And if he hasn't, he is able. Perhaps the first step that you will take towards salvation is to say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a rebel. Please save me from my rebellion. Change my heart, Lord. Change my heart. Be my king. He is more than willing to save lost, rebellious sinners. But dear friends, none of this will happen unless we are convinced that this message is true. Unless we come to see and believe the realities of which we speak. But the good news is that there is salvation through God's prophet. That Jesus Christ is not just a priest to give forgiveness of sins, and he's not just a king to bring your heart into submission. He's a prophet, a prophet who not only brings the truth to your ears as you're hearing it now from God's word, but who can bring the truth to your hearts. Notice the very end of our text. It says, For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. So there's this message that goes out. There's this gospel that is preached. And these people are... They're receiving it. They've never heard this before. This is not a message that you're going to find by looking at the stars or walking amongst the trees or by man's philosophy. But dear friends, there's something even more wonderful here than the preaching of the gospel. There's the fact that they see and they understand because these are the very words that Isaiah uses earlier to talk about the fact that Israel, even though they had God's word, even though they were the visible people of God, they didn't see. They didn't understand. They were blind. And is it not the terrible truth that someone can sit for years within a church building and hear the gospel preached over and over again, and never see, never understand, not be convinced. But the good news is that Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God so that as our prophet, as our very light, he can open the blind eyes. As it is prophesied in Isaiah 42, 6-7. Have you been convinced by Christ? If you haven't been convinced, it doesn't really matter what I say up here about the fact that he's this great priest who can give you forgiveness of sins. You won't necessarily even think you're a sinner. Or if you think you're a sinner, you might think there's some other way to deal with it. If you're not convinced of the truth of God's word, if you can't see it in a way that is convincing in your own mind, it doesn't really matter what I might say here about Jesus as king and as Lord. You might say, well, that's just a fairy tale until he appears. And then it will be no fairy tale. But then it is too late. But if you are convinced, if Jesus Christ takes the truth and puts it into your heart, 
so that you not only hear about it, but you see the glory of God shining in his word, not with the eyes of your, your face, not some vision, but with your heart. Then you'll follow Jesus for all your life because you're convinced that this is true. This is real. You who are believers know what I'm talking about. The light of the glory of God that shines in Jesus Christ has broken forth and is shining in your hearts. When you hear the gospel, you don't just hear a story or words. You hear the power of God. You see the wisdom of God. You see the one who is the Savior. And though you have not seen him yet physically, you love him. You trust him. How did that happen? Jesus Christ caused you to see and to understand. And my friends, if that's happened to you, if you've been convinced and conquered and cleansed by Christ, if he is your prophet, your priest, and your king, then you too are now a servant of the Lord. And your calling is to follow Jesus in the way of the cross to do God's will. And it will cost you. You too, though you will not have to suffer the kinds of things that Christ had to suffer because Christ alone was the sin bearer, it will cost you. But this is the path to glory. We must suffer with him if we would be glorified with him. We must walk the path of the cross and indeed carry our crosses, not his, but ours, if we are to wear the crown of glory in the end. And if you're a Christian, then may this vision of the humiliation and exaltation and salvation of Jesus Christ put fire in your bones and give you strength so that you can continue to serve him day after day after day. As a faithful Christian person, whoever you are, whatever your situation in life might be, whatever relationships you might have, that you will be a servant of the Lord. And you too will be a means by which the nations, beginning here, are reached with the gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. We bless you for sending your son. We pray, Father, that the, the glimpse of glory that we've had from this text would go down deep into our hearts. We pray that you would strengthen us, that we'd cease to be so preoccupied with ourselves that we would become preoccupied with your son, that we would come to adore and magnify and worship your son, that we would count it a privilege to suffer for the sake of the name who has suffered for us. And Lord, that we would spend more time and energy meditating on the glory that we will share with him. And Father, if there is anyone who's heard this message who's not yet a saved servant of God, would you please, through Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, make this the day of their salvation. Amen.